Welcome everybody to episode 122 of the Metabilis 2 podcast, which features myself, Ben. And David. And I think we are desirous to celebrate the centenary of John Pertwee, the eponymous third doctor. The erstwhile third doctor. (laughs) Yeah, the great man himself. uh, Exactly. Whose era our podcast is uh, directly named from, I guess. That's true. We are directly named after the Pertwee (laughs) era. Exactly. The the second planet of the Metabilis system. The nicer of the Metabilis system. Yeah, the friendlier, (laughs) the less spider-infested planet. (laughs) Fewer weird blue crystals. Yeah, exactly. And John Pertwee was your first doctor. Yeah, yeah. As I think I've said before on the podcast, the very first doctor I ever saw was the Christmas repeat omnibus edition of The Sea Devils. Which would have been in Christmas of 1972, I guess. I think so. Though, actually, I mean, I, I again, as I think I said before, I do have a very vague memory of seeing the beginning of the last episode of uh, Spearhead from Space, because hmm. I think it was on directly after the football scores, and I think my dad left it on by mistake, and I think Doctor <laughs> Who at that point was deemed to be too scary for me, so mm-hmm. it was quickly turned off. But um, it imprinted. It did imprint in my brain, my young, <laughs> my young brain. Um, yeah, so he's my first Doctor, and then uh, I think after that I watched The Three Doctors, I couldn't mm-hmm. believe my parents again told me that the other guy, the kind of small guy, also was the doctor. I didn't really believe that. Um, <laughs> just as when I didn't really believe them when they told me that Peter Purvis on Blue Peter used to be a companion of the doctor. I didn't believe that either. That right. seemed to me to be very unlikely and probably some kind of weird parental lie. Um, <laughs> and um, and yeah, and then the rest, the rest, as they say, is history. So... As we all know, you know, your first doctor imprints on you and uh, mm-hmm. you can't really, uh, can't really escape them. When did you first encounter John Perthwee? Mm, that's a good question. I think sometime in 1985, probably uh, March would be when KTCA and the Twin Cities was airing Pertwee because 1985 was the anniversary. Was it the anniversary year? No, that was 83. So they had kind of run to ground with uh, Tom Baker. They had repeated the Tom Baker doctor's run several times. and Everyone was bored of Tom by then. And uh, uh, Caves had probably already aired by then. So they were looking looking for content. So nip back into 1970 and start with Spearhead from Space. Wow, was that weird to like suddenly go back in time like that? Or didn't you know? Or didn't you care? It was welcome, I think, for me. Because okay. by, by the time you, me as a, a Doctor Who fan, had seen the regeneration from uh, Tom to Peter, right. you kind of got up to speed on that. And then with the five doctors, you knew that Pertwee was a doctor. So, oh, it's this guy. We get to finally see his stories. Where right. the disappointment was, okay, we had Spearhead, but then then the Silurians was in black and white. And that was kind of a, a jarring change. Well, with the whole thing was in black and white? Mm-hmm. On film, wow. Okay, mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, wow. and back in uh, the color hadn't been recovered yet. I, they only did that for the VHS release. Okay, and okay. so uh, Silurians in black and white, which 
in retrospect, if uh, my fuzzy memory serves, it uh, it helped out with the cave scenes and stuff. It made it more atmospheric. You right. you didn't see the joins quite as much on like the Tyrannosaurus Rex. Uh, yeah, Allosaurus, I think it is. Was it an Allosaurus? I think it's an Allosaurus. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a saurus of some kind. Some really, kind of dinosaur. Some kind of dinosaurus <laughs> of some kind. Um, interesting. And did you find Pertwee to be a a better doctor or just a different one uh, or a less good one? It was more familiar because we were nipping back into the early 70s and that was the era that I really liked with robots. So that was like 1975, 74. Okay. 74 was when robot, when robot was recorded. So we're going back to like 1969 for Spearhead. It was kind of a return to form. We had Unit that was familiar with some of the Tom Baker early stories. Right, so right. It it was kind of a return to form, and it was more of the Doctor Who that I really liked because the 80s wasn't really doing it for me, the hmm. Peter Davison-type Doctor. So it wasn't so much Spearhead, but with uh, the Silurians and then Ambassadors of Death and Inferno, right, those three really hooked me in and the Pertwee era, and then it all all changed then with uh, Terry Autons. So, so, so they they showed Ambassadors of Death as well. Was that also in black and white? It was. Yeah. Okay. And okay. I think Inferno was too. <laughs> oh goodness, black and white. So you were like, were you? That was very. Um... So we had color for Spearhead, and then all of a sudden, just a string of black and white weird uh, episodes. Yeah. Yeah, I can remember um, seeing. Because they did that, uh, I can't remember what it's called now, that documentary. Uh, was it an omnibus? Not omnibus. Um, I can't remember. Um, the one that's on the, the Wang Chiang DVD. I remember I got to watch that. And that had excerpts from uh, Pertwee stories in it. And I was really, that's why I was kind of more, that's what I was really excited. Because by then I'd read all the existing um target novelization so i was really excited to see something like terror of the autumns because of course um you know none of this ever got repeated i think again we've had this conversation before Mm -hmm. um about how the bbc uh, really wasn't allowed to repeats were just kind of the worst thing if the bbc was repeating something everyone got super mad at them basically yeah that was uh, kind of weird because yeah. in american television it was all so repeats. show it over and over again that's <laughs> fine um no it was like it was the worst things like ah there was angry letters in the radio times saying like ah more repeats why don't you make new stuff anyway so basically even though when this is the problem this is why they you know they lost half the show Right, because you know they never they never showed it again. Anyway, um, and I I remember being very confused because they showed uh, I think it was you know clips from Spearhead from Space, but they mm-hmm. also showed clips from Terror of the Ortons, and, and the particular clip they showed was the attack of the uh, of the Devil Doll. Oh right, and it was in bla- <laughs> it was in black and white, and I couldn't I uh-huh. like, by then you know I was trying to work out the sequence of like you know okay well I know that. Spearhead from Space takes place before Terror of the Ortons. Right. I also know that back in the olden days, TV was in black and white. So, ergo, that must be from before Terror of the Ortons. But it can't because I know it came after. And that really, really confused me at the time. Yeah. I think the the program that you're referring to was in the 1977 broadcast of Who's Doctor Who? Yeah, Melvin it. Bragg was the presenter in that. Uh, old Melvin Bragg was Melvin Bragg the presenter. I believe so. Yes. Oh goodness! Wow. Okay. 
So they they showed a lot of Pertwee clips in that, if memory recalls. Did they did they show that on American TV as well? Then oh no, PBS? I never saw it until it was on the special edition of uh, Talons of Wang Chiang. Oh, Okay, all right, yeah. So it was it's a... probably fresher in my mind than than yours if you if you're well, coming back to seventy seven. Yeah, I mean, well, like I like I I mean, I guess my I mean, obviously, I've seen it again because um mm-hmm. you know I've got that DVD, but um. Uh, what sticks in my mind is my confusion that some of it was in black and white because you know I didn't, right. wasn't really yeah you know, I wasn't part of fandom at that point and right. you know arguably I'm still not um, so uh, <laughs> you know I had no way to kind of work out what the hell was going on basically so that was kind of when interesting. was when was Dwas founded was that founded it was I think founded it was like seventy seven in... wasn't it seventy six seventy seven it was so it was right about that time so organized fandom really hadn't taken off by then. Yeah, I mean, I think it was there was disorganized fandom. There's there was one of those. Um, it wasn't terrifically interesting, but one of the most one of the more recent Doctor Who magazine special editions has basically like is a history of fandom, um, mm-hmm. which yeah. you know I think probably more interesting if you were there than when you, than if you weren't. But um, I think you know there were fan clubs that were run by people, um, and I think you know in pre fandom you you mm-hmm. were a member of a fan club you weren't you, yeah. you weren't member of a kind of a, an amorphous mass um mm-hmm. you were run by a particular individual but yes no Dwas, and again as I think, yeah as i think as i think i've said before i was actually one of the very earliest members of Dwas simply by accident because <laughs> my um i think it was the second convention they did which was at uh imperial college in london which is right next door to the science museum in uh south kensington and my dad had taken me to uh the science museum for a reason i can't remember i i, I like the science museum that's probably why, mm-hmm. why we went um and he'd also because uh, he was an architect um he'd also designed portions of imperial college so he was like wanted to go and poke around and see you know whether they were taking care of it or not right and we stumbled upon the uh, Dwyer's Doc 2 convention. Um, so uh, he, he encouraged me to like pick up details and then I joined. Right. Um, and never really went to another because I don't really like conventions that much. <laughs> yeah. I think that was uh, kind of the turning point in fandom, though, because you had, like you said, the fan clubs that existed in the 60s. And then with that formalization in Dwyer's, the Doctor Who Appreciation Society, uh, fandom became more organized and started training fans on how to think and you get get more of a uh, perceived fan wisdom about stories and, yep, yep. and appreciation of them. And uh, I think definitely by the time the 1980s roll around when uh, Davison and JNT were running it, there was a, a kind of a, a golden memories of the... Uh, third Doctor and Fourth Doctor reigns that impacted directly the show in the 1980s. Yeah, no, I think you're right because I think you know all of those kind of fan, well, the fan consultants who were, you know, assisting with the the production crew, with especially with continuity and things like that, were mm-hmm. were kind of fans of that era. Um, I'll just deliver another memory in case anyone is remotely interested. Another thing that I remember very clearly going to is that the, uh, again, this, this is Science Museum prompted this memory, is that earlier in the 70s, probably like 73 maybe, I don't know, the Science Museum, again in South Kensington, had an exhibition of um, BBC special effects. 
and that was slap bang in the middle of the of the Pertwee era, whenever that exhibition was. And I can remember very clearly being taken to that. And mm-hmm. uh, you got to go inside the TARDIS. There's like there was a TARDIS interior, and there was a Dalek. I remember that very very clearly. And I actually I still have the uh, the badge or pin, as I think you'd call it in America. Um, from that exhibition, which I wear proudly when when um, <laughs> the occasion demands, and it was I was subject of at least one person's admiring comments when I was at the the Gallifrey One convention in uh, Los Angeles earlier this year. Yeah, the dealer said, "Oh, that's a rare one." A glimmer of recognition. Yes, yes. The it was a dealer, and he was like, "Oh, that's a rare one." And I said, "Yes, I know. And you're not having it." <laughs> Mr. Dealer. Yeah, so those are, the, so, you know. It's, Do you have any was, pictures from them? Uh, no, I don't, actually. Um, uh, and I, I probably know why is because mm. my dad didn't have a flash on his camera, so he uh, wouldn't have been able to take pictures yeah. inside. Um, he was also passionately um, attached to his light meter. Um, I don't know whether you had a father who was passionately no. attached to their no. light meters, but yeah, we would always have to stand awkwardly for like several minutes while he adjusted mm-hmm. the light meter, so he got exactly the right exposure on the on the on the, on the picture he was about to take. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and he wouldn't it wouldn't have held with like fancy newfangled things like flashes. Yeah, so, yeah. So that's why there are no pictures of me at that exhibition. So Pertwee was pretty much the doctor for you then. You wouldn't have been exposed to him in any other form in cinemas and, and radio or anything like no, that. No, no, I wouldn't have gone and seen, you know, Carry On, whatever he was in. I think it was Carry On Screaming he was in, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. One of those Carry Ons. Um, I think that the kind of radio comedy that he was in, so like the Navy Lark and stuff, that was earlier in the 60s. And uh, again, you know, I didn't have a radio and my parents really didn't listen to radio comedy anyway. So mm-hmm. so I wouldn't have been exposed to that. No, this is this would have been my first encounter with him as a performer. I mean, I think one of the amazing things about listening to that most recent documentary yeah. about him that was on Radio 4 um, is just, you know, what a, you know, light entertainment star he was. Yeah. Yeah. Had you, had you had any Yeah, I've, that? I've listened to that. No, not. Well, I, I kind of got an inkling from the Navy Lark, which he did all the way through his tenure in Doctor Who. And right. I think the last Navy Lark was sometime in the... 77 or something crazy like that oh right okay but he was a i think a bona fide star and he was always working on his image always looking for always working for work and how how much world war ii disrupted but yet enhanced his career yeah because i mean you know he was in the navy right um and then you know he was also did he he did perform as well when he was in the in the forces as well. He set up some amateur dramatic companies with a uh, fellow seaman. Yeah, I and I think that for a lot of people who you know liked performing or wanted to you know be in front of other people, I think again the the providing entertainment because you know mm-hmm. as probably everyone realizes, bleh, I don't know what they do anyway. But you know, I mean, war is basically really really boring unless you're being shot at, in which case it's horrible. So. Um, uh, and you'd much rather be boring than horrible. So there's a lot of sitting around um, mm-hmm. in wars, as far as I understand them. So there's a lot of having to be entertained. And that's why, you know, people like Perp, we, I think, were so important in providing that entertainment. Hmm. Yeah. Um, what do you think his American equivalent would be? 
for our American listener. Mm, that's a, you didn't really have radio theater. You didn't really have radio comedy. He would be more, geez, I would have to think someone back in the 60s who went on to, to be, television. Yes. Yeah, I... Putting you on the I, spot. You know, yeah. I, w- I would say something like a, a Dick Van Dyke type, but then... Yeah, I thought that as well. Dick Van Dyke, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, obviously, I'm not sure how much he was in radio. But I mean, you didn't have radio comedy, right? Or did you have radio? You must have had radio comedy. It had it had pretty much died by the mid '50s. Did you have kind of forces entertainment? I mean, if you were in World War II and you're an American, like I don't know, oh sure, sure, in North Africa or somewhere, mm-hmm. were there people entertaining you? Or did yeah, you have to yeah. Sit well, you'd you'd have like Bob Hope. <laughs> it was Bob. <laughs> <laughs> you, every war like from the civil war onwards it's, like, it's bob hope here he comes no you would ha- i think th- that was like the big band era so you'd have uh glenn miller benny, glenn miller who was in the services yeah and benny goodman i was going to say so you, there are right there are definitely movie stars that would always go on uh tour and yeah whatnot yeah. but yeah it's not it's not uh i don't think there's really an, a, an equivalent but during the Korean War, Elvis was in, enlisted, so you'd, yeah. you'd have you'd have you'd have entertainers that would go into the services and do their their run, and then very controversially, at the time, you have Muhammad Ali, uh, Cassius Clay, who refused to serve during the Vietnam War and uh, did did time because he because. felt it was a an unjust an unjust war and he uh, and he was right in many ways he was yes very much so (laughs) so i've just looked up dick van dyke and he was born in 1925 Um, so six years after yeah so i mean i i I think that's a really good comparison actually because van dyke's done he hasn't done serious films but you know but you know he probably could do serious things if he he are you you saying mary poppins wasn't a serious film (laughs) hate mary poppins (laughs) Oh God! It's I, I, this is one of my standard jokes. Certainly, my children like it. Is um, Mary Poppins is is, the, is my song of the South, basically for 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 my culture and my people. It's as offensive as the song of the South is nowadays to other people. Anyway, mm. um, that's um, uh, it's Mary Poppins. Um, uh, but yeah, I think I think you know because he could sing, he could dance, he could mm-hmm. do silly voices. I think Pertwee was mainly silly voices. Yeah, well, that's how he made his money because he was a man of a thousand voices on radio, and so he was always in demand. He could play multiple characters. He yeah. could create characters with his silly voices, and so that was his bread and butter. And but he was always looking for an eye for, towards television, and always trying to get get a break. Yeah, and Doctor Who, I think, pretty much was his television break. I think it was. I don't think he'd really been on TV. I mean, he'd been in movies, but you know, mm-hmm. kind of cheap, cheap British movies. Yeah. Um, again, it's kind of interesting when you know, obviously, the whole Mister Pastry thing. Uh, you know, that was the uh, his kind of competitor in some ways to like well, who's going to be the new Doctor Who. I mean, he was another mm-hmm. kind of light comedy star, and um, uh, but a, you know, a lot more experienced in terms of. Um, so Richard Hearn, Mr. Pastry, that's it, um, who um, would have been more of a throwback to Hartnell, I think, in terms of looks. But it seems to me that, you know, the production team were casting around, looking around for kind of light entertainment people, which is kind of interesting. Because mm-hmm. I think, of course, with Patrick, Pat Troughton, he was a serious 
serious actor, not a serious lead actor, but a, certainly a serious character actor. Right. Um, and been in, basically been in everything for you know the 50s and 60s. I think the glamour that Pertwee brought was all him. That that kind of flair, that uh, style with the cape and the silk shirts and the ruffles was all Pertwee. I don't think that was in Barry Letts or the production team bringing that on. That's something I think he brought himself. Yeah, and I think certainly looking at you know the way that Barry Letts and you know Terry um, Dix used to dress, I mean, it's, it's glamour certainly didn't come from them. Um, but yeah, it's. I mean, <laughs> I, mean, I think. <laughs> I mean, I think it's clear, you know, he was a very charismatic and, um, you know, glamorous person right. in the, you know, traditional sense, in the original sense of the word glamour, kind of bewitching. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's, I think it was a super smart choice because, you know, this was the 70s and they needed someone who was Jason King from Department Z looking person, you know. Well, he, I mean, he dressed like Jimi Hendrix, for example, and, or some of the other early... 70s rock stars uh, again i think i've said on this podcast before the only two people in the history of the universe who look good in a ruffled shirt are Jimi hendrix and um john perwee basically <laughs> and yeah and he looks yeah and he's his costumes are great and weirdly even though they are very very 70s because he carries them so beautifully or so well uh it, they totally stand up basically he doesn't uh, to, uh, maybe I mean, well, I maybe I'm biased. Uh, you know, I am biased, but it seems to me that John Pertwee still looks really good in a way that Jason King doesn't look good. Um, again, to my mind, or mm-hmm. you know, other people who are you know are being dressed in the early seventies. Yeah. Um, John Pertwee just still looks amazing, basically. Yeah, he's glam rock without being the rock. <laughs> he's right, but he's 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 kind of that flamboyant, larger than life personality, uh, the carrying on into uh, Doctor Who. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's that charisma and air of knowing and commanding. You know, which is some you know which is different from the Troughton. I mean, the you know the Troughton was more of a kind of guarded and kind of you know jokey character. Right. And um, Pertwee was a lot more of a, you know, much more of kind of officer class kind of character than Troughton's kind of, you know, enlisted men class, mm. possibly. Pertwee was definitely of the establishment, but then he would use that to kind of upend the establishment. His portrayal of the doctor would run abrasive to the brigadier, to government ministers, to any any kind of authority type figure. But he still had that part of uh, part and parcel of the establishment air about him. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's you know, it's that. It's I said. It's the um, again. It's part of that kind of late sixties, early seventies nostalgia, kind of Victoriana, Adam Adamant, um, mm. that kind of thing. You know, where we all you know, clubs and Sherlock Holmes and Union Jacks and Sergeant Pepper and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, he's kind of part of that weird kind of Edwardian nostalgia that um, British culture went through in the late 60s and early 70s, um, but also combined with the kind of Jimi Hendrix, David Bowie, um, uh, Mark Bolan, I think. Yeah, again, T-Rex. Yeah. T-Rex, um, that kind of glam aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they never put John in um, uh, high heat, or, you know, built up heels and stuff, but, you know, he could have done. Um, right. <laughs> um, I think... You know, he wasn't that glam, but anyway, you know, it's 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 um, it's all kind of part of that, basically. Yeah, it's all part of that visually. 
and also in in the way the stories are made. You know, he's always kind of butting heads against civil servants and you know, sir this and sir that. And the reason why he can always win against all those civil servants is because, you know, he knows he goes to their clubs. Right. You know, he's a club man. He's a club. <laughs> he's very clubbable. Mm-hmm. Very, very clubbable. Yeah. He just fits in with the establishment, but he also uh, rubs it the wrong way, I guess. Anti-establishment, yeah. Well, I wonder, though, and you're much more in tune with your country's class system than I I will ever be, but I'm wondering if that was a a sense of upper-classness or a sense of privilege where— I'm thinking of like the portrayals of uh, Lord Peter Whimsey where he can get away with certain things that uh, a person who wasn't part of the aristocracy couldn't. It wasn't so much money in the doctor's sense, but it was knowledge or just uh, knowing things or knowing uh, knowing the future or knowing how things will work out. Yeah, and I think this is, you know, boringly, this is, you know, the difference between the American class system and the British class system is, uh, is the British class system is not based on money. It's based on birth. And not, and you know, which is also a form of knowledge. You know, it's about knowing the right way to behave. And you know, in the United States, it's generally classes based on how much money you've got. Right. And Donald Trump can have as much money as you, as much money as he wants, but he will always be lower middle class, if not actually working class. Uh, you know, he, you can't buy your way into into the upper classes. You have to, you have to have been born there. And I think you know the doctor in the Pertwee incarnation, you know, he's a time Lord. I mean, this is the right. first time, this is the first incarnation of the doctor <laughs> where he is actually, he's, he is a Lord. Yeah. He has been ennobled of some kind mm-hmm. and, you know, he's a member of the house of Lords. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. is of course, is of course clubbable and is part of that society because um, he's a Lord. Right. And I think with Pertwee, you know, Pertwee was not um, upper class in any kind of way, as far no. as I can understand. You know, he's Son born, of an actor. <laughs> yeah, son of an actor. But he was a mimic and could do voices. Uh, I think, of course, interestingly, the voice that he used for the Doctor is pretty much his own. Yes. Um, but it is a received pronunciation voice. I can't say how. Where was he born? He was born in Chelsea. He was born in London, mm-hmm. in West London. But, you know, I can't say how he would have spoken at school. Um, but, you know, over the years, especially as an actor, you know, in that period, you pick up this received pronunciation voice and you can very then very easily pass as a member of the upper classes. My guess with uh, his father being an actor, RP was probably spoken around the house. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, yeah. And again, you see, I mean, I think it's interesting. Um, traditionally, one sort of divides up the doctors by people who play themselves, and that is, you know, right. jo- John Pertwee, um, Tom uh, Baker, uh, Tom Baker, the kind of two main ones, and then you know, people who attempt to like act the part, right? Um, and traditionally, you know, that's Peter Davison and Tran Hall. Though, actually, you know, in some ways, I think all of them. I mean, I was just thinking about Trout and what I, what I just said a few minutes ago. You know, he's not an officer. He is an enlisted man, and that's kind of he, how he behaves. Um, mm. And he's clever, um, but knows that he shouldn't really display that cleverness um, because that will get him in trouble, trouble from his superiors. <laughs> um, he has, you know, he's Sergeant Bilko, basically. Mm. Whereas Pertwee is, as the third doctor, you know, delights in demonstrating how clever he is to anybody. 
um, who will care to listen, basically, which is, right. you know, it's a, maybe that's kind of more of an officer class. Um, mm. And I think in general, from what one reads about John Pertwee, he kind of enjoyed that, you know, in his general life as well. He was a big gadget man, loved machinery, loved driving around in fast cars and motorbikes and speedboats and, you know, had a villa on Ibiza and um, enjoyed the good <laughs> life um, that he did indeed. being an actor allowed him to have. And again, you want to contrast him with Pat Troughton. And I think we, we can do that because, of course, you know, they acted together in, in The Three Doctors, um, right. you know, who enjoyed other aspects of the of what an actor's life can give you, which is, you know, you can pretend to be someone else <laughs> and therefore have two families. Yes. You know, which because you're an actor and you can pretend and you can act, right. you can deceive people in order to, in order mm-hmm. to have that if you if you so wish. Um right. So yeah, which could be why he was so secretive too. Yes, and you know he's a secretive, is a secretive person who played as kind of a secretive doctor, mm-hmm. um, whereas John John Pertwee's doctor was so confident and open and uh, really wasn't kind of brooding um, in any kind of way. Always knew what to do basically, and I think mm-hmm. that's one of the things that made him such a hero to kids of my generation because you look up to you know a kind of father figure who you know always knows the right answer always knows what to do in any situation and that is again i think being part of part and parcel of being part of the upper class is that one of the things that distinguishes uh you know one of the one of the privileges of being privileged is that you always know what to do because you're in charge basically you know you're never at a loss (laughs) of what to say or what to do or how to act because what to say and what to do and how to act is the, the entire society is constructed around around you in that way. Because you're raised or trained to fill that role. Yeah, and, you know, again, as I said, the, this this is the first time the Doctor has been a Lord. So, you know, he was yeah. raised and trained to fill that role. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So an, another big influence on this was uh, James Bond, which was uh, quite the established movie franchise by 1970 and he was friends with Roger Moore. Yeah, the, but Roger Moore when 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 was Roger Moore's first James Bond? When was um uh, Live and Let Die? It was in 1973, so it was 3 years 3 4 years after Pertwee took over. But Roger Moore had also been the Saint as well. He'd been the Saint, mm, which is mm-hmm. another kind of, you know, not Lord Peter Whimsey, but you know a similar kind of upper class um mm-hmm. detective and I think he was in, he was in The Persuaders with um uh, Tony Curtis, which was a short-lived TV show, he was in a bunch of kind of suave, suave um, spy movies. Actually, I'll tell you. So, so I, I was um, for reasons which I won't go into. I was watching um, the final Matt Helm movie at the weekend. So that was a series of four films that um, Dean Martin made in the sixties, and I happened to have come across. A box set of them and I was watching one of them uh, called The Wrecking Crew 1968 which is Sharon Tate's last movie that also has Nigel Green in it and it was absolutely awful really just boring and badly acted and badly directed and Dean Martin was kind of stumbling through it as if like he really didn't have to try but it was interesting to me because it was like oh wow so this is you know the James Bond movies are the movies we still watch but this is the the sort of under movie of that kind of you know spy fad of the sixties, um, and I th- I think it's kind of what I mean when I said when I was saying you know there's a lot of kind of sixties fashion especially for men 
that just looks the worst. I think it still works for, for women, in, maybe in some ways. But, you know, Dean Martin looked awful. And he was wearing the similar kind of clothes um, to um, uh, John Pearl. In fact, there was actually the, the Nigel Green <laughs> character, who's the kind of blowfelt of the movie, actually has a ruffled shirt. Um, mm. And I think so, like, God. It's not, and Nigel Green's super cool. Nigel Green's like six foot four, British actor, um, was in Zulu and a whole bunch of cool movies. Um, fortunately, ended mm-hmm. up killing himself in the in the in the late 70s but um you know he looked he didn't look good at all he didn't look good at all in a ruffle shirt like wow you know john pertwee's got the big puffy white hair and he's got the big puffy big (laughs) big, puffy frilly shirt and he's got a purple velvet bow tie and he's got giant great big sideburns i mean dean martin sideburns in um this movie look again you know well dean martin looks awful anyway to my mind but anyway you know look look Mm -hmm. look really poor John Poe, he just carries that whole thing off just without a, you know, he's, what is it? It's the, it's Planet of the Daleks where he's dressed entirely in purple, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it, that really shouldn't work because it really shouldn't, but it works fine. He looks great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah his uh, velvet dinner jackets or his velvet jackets were just perfect for the character. Yeah. You know, and then it gets worse. And, you know, his final season, the, the um, Monster of Peladon, uh, Curse of Peladon, beg your pardon. No, hang on. Which is the first? monster is final season? Yeah, monster, monster Peladon. He's dressed all in green, so it's, yep. you know it's like, and then he's purple, and then he's green, um, and again mm-hmm. that shouldn't work. But he looks, he looks really good. He looks amazing. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, so we, I think the whole James Bond spy, the kind of Venusian Aikido, again something that was jiving with me with the, with watching the uh, uh, the Wrecking Crew is um, uh, apparently the consultant for that movie. There's a lot of kind of vaguely racist Chinese characters in that film. Um, uh, but the, all the kind of kung fu moves were, were developed by Bruce Lee. He was the consultant on the movie. So huh. they're actually kind of impressive. But, you know, everyone was doing kung fu at that time. So um, that was another thing. Well, it was kind of a, a tumultuous time then for James Bond when he was starting because we had... Uh, uh, Nivens and Lazenby all doing the role in like si- between 67, 69 plus Connery uh, reprising the role a few more times before finally uh, giving over to Moore and what, what was it, 74? Yeah. And George Lazenby has a kind of ruffled shirt in um, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. It's more of a kind of Germanic one because um, hmm. it's all set in Switzerland and all those kind of places. Right. And... Um, you know, and then they bring back Sean Connery for like a final one for um, Diamonds Are Forever. And that has a kind of Sean Connery. I think Sean Connery's, I mean, you know, obviously I like James Bond movies because who doesn't? Um, <laughs> I mean, Sean Connery looks you know, uncomfortable through most of that film, mainly because they make him wear a wig um, or a toupee to cover up his baldness. But his, you know, again, he finds those kind of excessive 70s clothes, early 70s clothes kind right. of, they, they don't they don't sit well on him. Right. And again, I'm saying they sit brilliant. They sit brilliantly on um, on John Pertwee. Yeah, he could carry it off. Uh, the one bit of Pertwee that I don't think ages well is his dynamic. A lot of times with his assistant, um, most notably for me would be like him and uh, Katie Joe Joe Grant in like the Demons, where he's really pretty hard on her yeah. a lot of the times. And I don't think that's necessarily Pertwee, but that's definitely the way that Dix had Pertwee scripted a lot of times, that uh, he would uh, 
childized the, the, the female companion quite a bit. Even in like a Liz Shaw, and both Letts and Dix really didn't even know what to do with Liz Shaw at all. Right, right. Yeah, they were... It's weird because, you know, they obviously, they'd... Um... They were going down the Quatermass route and they wanted they wanted like a super scientist and then a super scientist, super scientist companion, assistant, you know, right. a lab assistant, you know, but also was also yeah. a super scientist of some kind. And well, I, that was Sherwin's idea. Yeah. And I think weirdly, I mean, I think it made everyone feel uncomfortable. It was like, oh, hang on. There's there are two super scientists. Um, one of them's a girl. Uh, we need to have <laughs> um, and, you know, it's a kid's show. So, you know, they, they, right. they do need to have someone to explain to. Right. And there does need to be a kid on it as well, really. And I think, hmm. you know, Katie Manning is the kid. Yeah. Well, she definitely starts out as the kid coming in on Terra the Yatans. And yeah. The Brigadier does explain it from, I think, from a production standpoint that uh, the doctor needs someone to hold the test tubes and ask the questions. Yeah. And he kind of does, really, because we need, we, you know, the audience needs people, needs stuff explaining to them. Um, and, you know, obviously you can do it in different ways and obviously, you know, New Who does it in very different ways. But I think in, uh, you know, the dramatic infancy of genre television, which where where we are at this point, um, I, th- mm-hmm. I don't think it was very easy to find to think of a way where that could be done without having one person being kind of a child. Um, mm. though, I mean, you know, Joe Grant throughout the seasons does grow and develop, you know, she is, mm-hmm. you know, she's, she trained as a secret agent. Um, she's also part of that sixties spy thing mm-hmm. and, you know, she gets better and better at being, you know, she escapes from prisons and cells and, you know, Ogron right. prisons and, and Isle of Wight style sea devil prisons. And, you know, she's, mm-hmm. yeah. And she's, she can fight and, um uh, she knows how to deal with giant maggots and i don't know yeah she kind of she develops i think she develops i think the demons is definitely the demons is an especially poor i mean every, every i mean obviously everyone loves the demons the demons is very good but it is a particularly patronizing outing for the doctor in my opinion yeah, yeah. he's not usually that patronizing no he isn't and he definitely isn't throughout joe grant's time but that one at the end of Joe's first season, so what is that, season eight, it doesn't hold up, and it is, a, I think, a little bit of a tarnish on the third Doctor's portrayal. Right, right, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So you have mentioned in the past that there was this reevaluation, and this must have happened during the wilderness year of Pertwee. There was a Pertwee third Doctor backlash, and was this part of it, or how, how did that come yeah, about? Yeah, I, I was I, blissfully unaware. Yeah, of it. I should I should have done some research for this podcast, but um, I think if you um, uh, what's that? That smacks of work. That does smack. Of work. I have to do research all the time from work. Anyway, there's that fan writing anthology that that you know Mad Norwegian did like a decade plus ago or so that I've got somewhere. I should dig that out. But I am pretty sure that there was largely, in some ways, led by Paul Cornell, there was a there was a Pertwee backlash, as far as I remember. Mm. And that backlash was to do with his establishmentness. You know, that he, he wasn't woke. He was a snob and a member of the upper class, patronised women, liked, you know, hung out with soldiers, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, mm. And um, I will, I will dig out my copy of 
of um, whatever that book is called that is that fan anthology, and I'll dig out some citations of a Pert Wee back. Was it the anthology of the fanzines, or was it something else? No, hang on, I'll put, I'll, I'll, I'll go and get it. Give me a second. All right. <laughs> Well, I can't find it offhand. Um, I might actually have got rid of it because I didn't. I didn't like it. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, there was a backlash, and I think it was it was class based. Hmm. Okay. Basically, yeah. Because he now is kind of in a renaissance, and I think it's largely due to Katie Manning and probably Big Finish recasting uh, the Third Doctor of Tim Trelore. Yeah. That there's a resurgence of the Third Doctor or interest in the era, but I think it's largely due to the uh, growing number of the explosion of women in the Doctor Who fandom that came along with Tennant and. Uh, and they started looking or reappraising or reevaluating uh, Doctor Who in the 1970s and really, uh, really fell in love that with changed, Katie Manning's portrayal, yeah. portrayal of Joe Grant and her journey. Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of that also is to do with Katie Manning, who is fabulous in every way <laughs> and was, of course, you know, very young when she was playing that character, so is still. She's still not very young, obviously, but, you know, she's still young enough to have the energy to spend a lot of time at conventions and right. be able to act in, you know, the Iris Wild Times and then, you know, the the Companion Chronicles and now actually kind of, you know, bona fide, I'm now being mm-hmm. Joe Grant um, right. stuff. Um, she's 72 now. 72, yeah. Yeah, so she's got plenty of time left to do more of this. Yes, um, yes. So... Uh, I think a lot of it's a lot of it. I would have said a lot of it is to do with Katie Manning and you know her charisma mm-hmm. and her obvious joy at being someone that people are fans of. You know, she loves being someone that people are fans of, mm-hmm. um, and um, uh, uh, yeah, and you know, and, and her just you know her promotion of the show basically. So, I wonder if the dip in uh, Pertwee coincided with her time in Australia that we didn't have. Oh, maybe uh, yeah. Her era's era's champion and easy easy access during during the nineties. Right. Yeah. And, could be. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because she had just, how long? Just a thought. How long was she in Australia for? She was in Australia for like twenty years or so. A long time. Yeah. Yeah. She didn't move back to the UK like until two thousand ten, two thousand nine time frame. Yeah. So entirely possible. Yeah. Entirely mm-hmm. possible. I'm really irritated. I can't find that book now. Um, it must be around <laughs> somewhere. Um, it may be in a box elsewhere, but anyway, it's a, mm. it's uh, some anthology of fan writing. Hmm. Anyway, yeah. yes. So that's kind of an overview. Yeah. Uh, my probably earliest memory of John Pertwee was not so much. <laughs> this is was not so much a television show. I encountered Pertwee first and a Target novelization, which is the, I guess, the British fan way of encountering right, Doctor Who of course. in the 70s. And my first Pertwee story was The Planet of the Spiders. And that really, <laughs> that took a while to f- uh, figure out because, of course, they don't have Pertwee on the cover. Right. And they have Sarah Jane Smith and they have the Doctor and they had familiar characters like the Brigadier. But uh, <laughs> that it it wasn't 
it wasn't Tom Baker's. And then there was this regeneration at the end, which really, really kind of threw me. So I read that on a canoe camping trip up in the Minnesota Boundary Waters or oh, wow. in, uh, southern, okay. southern Ontario. That was the book one of my fellow campers had along and he read it so then I read it and this was before this is this must have been like an 83 time frame okay. so it was uh, several years before and target paperbacks were pretty rare uh, rare to find you could have occasionally find them in kind of a, a mall bookstore like B Dalton's or Walden books right so that was a rare book to be treasured and it, it did open up a little bit of the Doctor Who world for me oh and that was and that was the, literally that was the first one you read and did you pick it off the shelf because it had doctor who written on it i picked it up because i was on a camping trip and i had finished my book which or i didn't i couldn't get into it it was a uh, tolkien silmarillion Ugh, and i was that, i was expecting not a good book to take with you on a camping trip <laughs> i was expecting hobbits and full-on hobbit kind of action and it was like no this is the elven blah yes i'm right that's an yeah. awful book really and so this other kid had a copy of planet of the spiders and it wasn't the original cover it had just the cover of a metabolus crystal on it and i think a spider oh yeah yeah, that, that edition. Yep, 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 yep. Memory serves. And so it had Doctor Who on it, and I loved Doctor Who. I think I was 13, 14 at the time, and uh, so made a point of reading that. Uh, excellent. Very good. Um, I, I have just quickly run my fingers over my keyboard. The anthology I'm thinking of is a book that was published in 1997 called License Denied. Hmm. Rumblings from the Doctor Who Underground, edited by Paul Cornell. Hmm. And it was published by Virgin. And the reason I don't have it with me here, because it's back in Britain, because I wouldn't have bought it with me when I moved to America. So that's the one that's got all the, got all, got some Pertwee hate in it, as far as I remember. Hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. so there you go. Uh, right. Good. Well, that's, a, that's our overview of the Pertwee era. Overview, mind. Yeah. We haven't started on the seasons yet. So I think next time we will go looking at the overview of the seasons and just general memories yeah, we'll, of uh, how how they are. We'll go season by season. We'll see how many seasons we get through. Maybe this will be a couple of podcasts, um, mm. depending on how quickly we decide to whiz through the Pertwee seasons. Indeed, yes. But yeah, they pay. They do pay close uh, uh, close attention to those seasons. Is is is, is definitely something that's worth that's worth doing. They're all. They're all fabulous. I don't find a single Pertwee story that I, there isn't something to enjoy in it, basically. Yep, he is my uh, go-to Doctor Who uh, when I am tired of Tom Baker to be in. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So he's the, he's the backup Tom, He's the backup, the backup Who, yeah. <laughs> well, and I think Tom Baker's my backup when I'm, when I'm, mm-hmm. when I'm done with, uh, with uh, Pertwee, to be honest, yeah, yeah. Just a flip. Just a flip, exactly. Well, great, excellent. John Pertwee, 100 years. Hurrah! Long time, hooray! And his son is awesome as well, Sean Pertwee, mm-hmm. who's you know a really good actor and has been in lots of great genre TV and movies, and um, looks getting to look more and more like his dad, which is kind <laughs> of unnerving. Um, but yeah. obviously, just I know we can recommend that Radio Four documentary because his love for his father really, um, really kind yeah. of shines out, and it's a lovely piece of presenting that he does. Yeah, his older sister, uh, Dariel, was an uh, actor, too, for a while before she went into... I think she's a psychologist now. Oh, really? Okay. So it's an acting family. Right, yeah, acting family, an actor's life for me, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, Pertwee's first wife was Jean Marsh. That's true, yes. Jean Marsh was his <laughs> first wife. 
I am. Um, yeah. yeah, I have one. And Sean and Dariel's uh, mother is Ingeborg. Ingeborg, so. yes, I'm proud of yeah. one of her cookbooks. Yeah, yeah, I have. Um, Any good? Um, it's soup, basically. It's it's <laughs> called Simply Soup or something by Ingeborg Pertwee. I've never actually cooked any soup from it because I'm not actually a big fan of soup. It always seems like, well, if you're just going to have a bowl of soup, then that's not actually food. So you need to push on to the main course. <laughs> right. Oh, and next time we should talk about his books, that the his memoirs that he wrote, Moon Boots and Dinner Suits. And oh, stuff. Um, yeah. And maybe there's more overviews because we haven't even touched on Wurzel Gummidge. No, we haven't. Good Lord. Yeah. We haven't done any post who work at all. So, you know, all the and, quiz... And who done it. Who and... done it, all the quiz shows he did, and then yeah. Russell Gummidge, which I think he's on record of saying is he actually preferred it to Doctor Who, mainly because I think he could do a funny voice. <laughs> yeah. But maybe Perhaps. that's maybe that's for next week. Sure. Why don't we wrap up here and then go on to 123? Excellent. Yeah, thank you for listening to episode 122 of the Metabulous 2 podcast. I have been talking to Ben. And I've been talking to David. And on to more Pertwee next time. More Pertwee all the time. Goodbye. enjoyed it enormously because I was able to turn it into some sort of lunatic science fiction James Bond because I love gadgets and I love motorbikes and anything. If, if there was any new type of gadget or machine, I used to ring out Barry Letts, my producer, and say, I found a motorbike that goes into a briefcase. He said, book it. <laughs> John will love it. <laughs> yes.